0: Hi hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. Today we're going to be diving into two stories that, on the surface level, seem dissimilar, but in reality draw very real parallels between the developing world and our Western democracies. There is often much to be learned from systems of government that may be less stable than our own. The same forces are at play no matter where you look that tend to be the ones to separate people, to destroy democracies, and to result in harm destruction, and tyranny. So without further ado, let's get started. The story starts in Lebanon. For those of you who haven't followed the news recently, there was an explosion in the capital, Beirut. It killed more than 170 people and injured more than 6,000, triggered when 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate, a dangerous chemical stored near a port, caught fire and eventually detonated. Entire blocks were leveled, homes, businesses, and the port area destroyed. Lebanese officials say that the cost is over 15 billion US dollars, and while there has been aid from countries such as Canada, France, and Germany, it's obviously not enough to cover those damages. To make matters worse, there's been an economic crisis in Lebanon, compounded upon by the coronavirus, resulting in the Lebanese pound being down 80% since November. This means that the price of ordinary goods now costs exorbitant prices and much of the Lebanese people's money has actually been locked up in a corrupt banking system that does not actually have the resources necessary in order for people to withdraw the money they need in order to rebuild their houses. All this has led to ongoing protests and demands for action. In fact, many parliament officials, the cabinet, and the prime minister, Hassan Diab, all resigned. The prime minister, upon leaving, stated, Corruption is rooted in every part of the state. But I found out that corruption is even greater than the state. Let's take a look at the Lebanese system of government and how its atrocious management has actually led to these state of affairs. Quite frankly, the Lebanese government is a sectarian nightmare. Let's just read a short excerpt from Wikipedia of all places that aptly summarizes this. The president for example has to be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister a Sunni Muslim, the speaker of parliament a Shia Muslim, the Deputy Prime Minister and Deputy Speaker of Parliament, Eastern Orthodox. The Parliament has to be split 64-64 between Christians and Muslims. Now, it's not easy to spot the problem at first sight. Considering Lebanon's history, which had a harsh civil war filled with intersectarian violence, this seems like a compromise that may act to reduce some of the tensions within the country itself. However, looking a bit closer, it's obvious that the Lebanese government does have serious problems. At every level of government services, including even the simplest of demands, including power, utilities, and tax collection, there are often bribes involved. There are always government officials looking to take a cut for themselves, and especially with a lot of the higher administrative positions, you see a lot of leveraging of insider power in order for all of these higher officials to be controlled by oligarchs and religious leaders. In fact, due to these bizarre religious restrictions, The pool of honorable people is often very small and very easy to overlook. This means that these positions are often de facto appointed by oligarchs and religious leaders, religious leaders who of course then proceed to take cuts and government contracts for themselves, further depriving the people of their money. In the words of Canadian Finance Minister Pierre Polyev, referring to a completely different scandal when he spoke these words, complexity is the refuge of the scoundrel. To paraphrase his following speech, It's often very simple for a government to execute a task in front of the public eye. When a simple program is put into place, when money is moved directly to the hands of those who are supposed to receive it, then there's little room for corruption. However, if you want to funnel money to insider interests, if you want to engage in bribes and leverage that political power, then you make a system that is increasingly complex. You make something that is difficult for the regular person to understand so much so that the only people who actually know what's going on are those inside power brokers. This is exactly what has happened in Lebanon, and it's increasingly common in the rest of the world, even in Western democracies. It's clear that in Lebanon, these sectarian divides, which often doesn't even quell demographically motivated resentment, serves as something to muddy the waters. It serves as something to obfuscate the actions of the government to make it harder for honorable people to do a simple job, and to create these patronage positions to essentially inject corruption into the system. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at in our next story. As we already know from previous episodes, the US is one of the weakest democracies in terms of anti-corruption standards and media standards. In this case, it's no exception. The Postmaster General is an office appointed by the President of the United States, that essentially maintains the postal service in that country. Historically, the person who serves that role has had experience in government service and with dealing with the post office. However, this year is an exception. President Donald Trump appointed Louis DeJoy, someone who has had no experience whatsoever aside from contributing to the Trump campaign. In many countries, this would be grounds for immediate removal. It's a clear-cut case of corruption, of someone donating to a political campaign, and receiving something out of it. Similar actions were done with various other government positions, including advisorships and foreign ambassadorships, including to the United Nations or to other countries such as the United Kingdom or Germany. However, while the instance with the Postmaster General is a novelty, there has actually been a history of this form of corruption in the United States dating back not only decades, but possibly even centuries. This may not have as deep of a reach in other western democracies, but there also have been small instances of this happening in the United Kingdom and France. These were scandals in and of themselves, which they absolutely should be. There should be no bribery, especially instances that lead to government office. However, in the United States, this is commonplace. Looking back at the situation in Lebanon, we can actually draw clear parallels to show why there has been these cracks in one of the oldest democratic systems. Let's look at another case, James Clyburn of South Carolina. He's a long-serving representative who has deep connections with the African-American community. One of the pivotal moments in the selection of the 2020 Democratic candidate, once again the left-leaning candidate of the United States for president, was when James Clyburn came out and endorsed Joe Biden, the former vice president, eventually leading to Biden's victory in that state of South Carolina. Now, this is a perfectly legal action, and endorsements from politician to politician are common across the world. However, the important thing to remember about the United States is that it's often divided intentionally by political parties along racial lines. This means that there's been decades of political campaigning that is meant to draw a direct attachment from the African American community in South Carolina, to representatives such as James Clyburn, giving Clyburn excess power in determining the outcome of the primary, and eventually in determining the presidential nominee. While normal endorsements tend to serve as a measure of verification of a politician's capabilities, of their beliefs, and of their integrity, they often serve a different purpose in terms of coalition building, particularly in the United States when this coalition building is disproportionately drawn by racial lines. Now, why exactly is this a problem, and what does it have to do with bribery? Well, let's take a moment and look back to the quote that I talked about before. Complexity is the refuge of the scoundrel. When you add arbitrary factors, particularly immutable or close to immutable ones, and even more particularly those that are incredibly polarizing, such as race or religion, you create arbitrary lines that you can draw In order for powerful politicians and media figures to include or exclude various allies or enemies into their coalitions. This means that when you have these arbitrary lines drawn in order to fracture the population of a country, many of those subpopulations become heavily influenced by corruption, they become heavily influenced by insider politics, and this often leads to their interests being underserved. You can see that this is the case in the African American community, often there is much more media attention placed on selecting someone who quote-unquote represents them, usually someone who just happens to be African American, instead of solving issues that disproportionately affect them, such as poverty or such as police reform. This doesn't mean that police reform and poverty are completely off the table when people are looking at issues to campaign on. However, it does mean that when you misdirect these people, when you try intentionally to campaign in a way that connects their loyalty to these immutable traits instead of to these policies, instead of towards establishing an honest, transparent political system, then you're going to have a system where it's easier to get away with a lot of these ambassadorships and a lot of these government positions and contributing towards direct corruption. This doesn't just happen within the African community, however, it happens with other minority groups and it happens within religious groups as well. The right wing often engages in this, much like how the left wing engages with this in terms of minorities. You can see the same thing playing out with Joe Biden's vice presidential selection. He explicitly made a promise to select a woman for his vice presidential slot, later a woman of color, and eventually settling on an African American woman. We talked about that last episode, and we have to actually look at who is being satisfied here, As I talked about last episode, Harris is someone who has strong appeals to insider donors, to Californian insiders, and to the corruption that those two groups entail. Moreover, it tends not to be African Americans or other minorities that actually care about electing someone of those demographic types. African American voters of the Democratic Party actually favored Elizabeth Warren, a white woman, with 63% preference, over Harris, with around 50%. This means that if someone was actually looking to serve African Americans' interest, they would be selecting Warren instead of Harris. However, this symbolism is meant to set up a narrative. It's meant to set up a narrative that emphasizes those immutable characteristics and adds unnecessary complexity into the system. Complexity that allows those media allies to ignore, say, Harris's history of corruption. Another source of complexity in the United States is its representative system. The House, which is proportionately allocated, the Senate, which allocates two members per state, and the Presidency, which is elected through the Electoral College, which essentially selects a group of electors based on the House numbers and the Senate numbers from each state. The idea of this is that it strikes a compromise. During the founding of the USA, it was a method in order to convince more states to join the Union, in a way that would make sure that smaller states are served while larger states' interests are also served in a fairer way. However, a strong effect that it has contemporaneously is that it creates uneven incentives for state-by-state, meaning that often advertising dollars and campaign staff are much more important in order to flip specific states in order to create a geographic coalition which means that this complexity favors insiders, it favors those with access to that information, and with the money that you need in order to actually influence it. This isn't to say that the Electoral College's intentions were bad, or that there aren't any benefits to it. However, this is a trade-off that you have to look at, and we have to think of whether there's a way in order to create a new compromise that removes some of this obfuscation, that represents geographic interests, without adding a necessary complexity and room for corruption. A shorthand for these types of reforms is that we should be looking to simplify down. We should be looking to create the exact same incentives with a smaller rule set, which means that while we may still want states like Wyoming or like Hawaii, which have a smaller population, to still be able to protect their own interests, we shouldn't necessarily do it in a way that allows for these insiders to gain more access like many of the other stories that I talk about, in order to get the answers to all of these questions, we have to solve the root problem, which is the state of media in the United States. Unfortunately, there are many media institutions that are incredibly corrupt, particularly televised media. Because of this, when we have a system that adds unnecessary complexity, all it does is give more firepower to these corrupt institutions in order to further exert their power a famous legal adage goes as follows. If you have the facts on your side, pound the facts. If you have the law on your side, pound the law. If you have neither on your side, pound the table. Referring to a strategy that stirs up a lot of anger, that essentially tries to distract the opponent. This is the politics of distraction that I talked about before, and it's the politics of division that tries to divide people up based on their immutable characteristics, or based on other fundamental characteristics such as religion. It's exactly the problem in Lebanon, and it's rising in the United States and in other Western democracies. Of course, Trump is an expert at this, but so are Democratic politicians and media allies, as well as other Republicans. One example of this happening in practice are the attacks on Senator Bernie Sanders when he was running for the Democratic nomination for president. Many attacked Sanders for being old, white, and male things that he has no control over, unless he invents a time machine. Of course, none of these factors mean anything about how Sanders would govern, anything about his character, his integrity, or his positions. Whether you agree with his positions, or you don't, we have to acknowledge that these are incredibly corrupt attacks that are meant to distract from his actual issues. In fact, once again, if we were actually to look to represent the interests of young people, Sanders is favored among young people, If we are looking to help minority groups, although once again, dividing people up by some of these characteristics is very counterproductive, then Sanders actually has more minority support, either by absolute numbers or by percentage of his coalition, than everyone except for the eventual winner, Joe Biden, who actually often faced similar attacks on him as well. Once again, the goal of these attacks aren't to actually represent those groups. They are to divide people arbitrarily. And distract from the actual issues at hand. They create incentives that allow for that corruption, that allow for money to be funneled to various politicians in exchange for political favors, in exchange for corrupt contracts and laws, and in exchange for government positions. Another thing that's important to note is this America-rooted idea of representation, of having politicians with these superficial features that are similar to the coalitions that they're trying to get to vote for them doesn't actually influence policy in favor of these minority groups at all. There's no correlation whatsoever with the quality of life of many individuals in these groups to the amount of people with similar traits in their government. In fact, many of these minority groups, either people of African descent, people of Latino descent, people of Asian descent, fare better in countries around the world, where they're less represented both in the population and in the government, including in Canada, including in Germany, etc. As I talked about in the previous episode, a lot of these actually create negative incentives, they actually make it less likely for these minority groups to be served when they're divided up, when people take advantage of them in order to corral them and build their loyalty in one specific political party. Of course I use these examples from the recently concluded Democratic primary because they're still fresh in everyone's memory. However, the same thing happens across the aisle with Republicans, and if you remember, the first example that I had of patronage positions of overt corruption was in the Trump administration. And the Trump administration has taken this to a higher degree just as it's been taken just as it's been taken up a notch every single administration with the past few decades. This is something that has to end both the sectarianism and the corruption, and I'm not saying that all corruption will immediately go away if we remove some of these media powers and if we remove some of the distractions that are put on the table. However, they are nonetheless steps towards cleaning things up, steps that will reduce the severity of the corruption and will help everyone moving forward. In the end, what you need to do is absolutely end sectarianism in politics. When people try to divide by these arbitrary factors, just say no. People who look at data on race and draw opinions without following scientific standards should be looked at with the exact same contempt as people who believe conspiracy theories, because that's essentially the same thing. When people look at graphs without the proper methodology and say, oh that's racism, or oh that means someone is inferior, there's no difference between that And conspiracy theories that look at a map of 5G towers and look at a map of coronavirus and say that they're causal, and say that it means anything. Because it doesn't. If you look at the underlying factors, it's because that 5G towers and coronavirus cases are all located in cities. It's a very simple underlying explanation if you look at the other factors. And similarly, when you look at economic class, when you look at geographic factors, those other things disappear as well. When people push things that have no evidence for success, such as political representation, such as affirmative action, they should be looked at with the exact same contempt as well. They're things that don't solve the problem, and in fact make them worse. They're things that add fuel to the fire that allows corruption to keep on going. Ultimately, what we need to learn to do is to separate the personal from the political, To separate these sectarian factors, these things that politicians use in order to try to manipulate and in order to try to distract, from the actual things that matter. From policy positions, from reliability, from a politician's record, from anti-corruption standards. From all of those things that help keep a democracy functioning. Of course, a MetaPolitics episode would be remiss if it didn't mention improving media quality overall. And once again, one of the best ways you can do this is to share the podcast. Help put more pressure on media to reform. Help lift up higher quality journalism, and do it all by liking, commenting, and subscribing. Don't forget to post on your social media, and just message people who like talking about politics. It's a good way to help make people more informed, no matter what their ideology or their pre-existing beliefs is. After all, I'm pretty sure we're all opposed to corruption here. Do that, and you can help remove the scourge of corrupt media, either in the United States, in other Western countries where they're just developing, or even in countries where there's a significant problem with it already. Remember, you have a lot of power. If everyone who listens to this podcast shares it with two other people, then we'll have a significant influence on helping the media improve in no time. So keep sharing, keep contributing, let me know if there's anything you want me to cover, and keep up the good fight. Until next time, this is Metapol, with me, Cactus.